Well, good morning, family. Nice to you. Uh, <laughs> thanks, Mom. Um, yeah. <laughs> I'm excited to be here, too. Um, I, wonder, I wonder if the Apostle Paul wished that he was a better speaker. Now, before we unpack that any further, I feel like there's something I should share with you. And as I share this with you, I'm going to ask that you please not look at me any differently. But due to recent events and promotions, I am now officially an orange belt in karate. That's right. Yep. Yeah. Nope. Don't treat me any differently. Nope. Nope. Please. Please. Save it. Save it. I know some of you are going to try and hit me in the halls now and see if I can... Your funeral. Okay. Or, or at least light bruising at the worst. Um, for those of you who don't know what it means to have an orange belt in karate, it means I am officially an advanced beginner. Yes. Not quite, not quite deadly, just irresponsibly dangerous. And um, I, I've been studying for months under the instruction of Sensei Doug. That is his Japanese name. His American name is just Doug. And um, Doug's awesome, very patient with me. And uh, how it all started was my seven-year-old Mason, uh, earlier in this year, he decided that he wanted to take karate lessons, and Mr. Doug had been to his school many times, and uh, so we looked up Mr. Doug and, and signed up for classes, and it just happened that I was the one who would drop Mason off for karate. And so uh, every time Mason would you know, walk into the dojo, uh, I'd be ready to watch him, but Doug would always come over and say, you know, Tom, it's really nice when the dads do karate with the kids. And I go, that's great, Doug. And I'd have a seat on the couch. And um, I'd come back the next time. And, uh, you know, Mason's ready and dressed for karate. And Doug would say, hey, Tom, I don't know if I told you this before, but it's really nice when the dads do karate with the kids. And I'm like, yeah, okay, Doug, thanks. And so this happened over and over until eventually I was like, fine, give me a gi, bring it on, let's do this. And, uh, and so now because my seven-year-old son uh, started earlier than me, he technically outranks me. And, and so, and if you've never been to karate class before, you have to start the class by understanding, understanding where you fall in the rankings. You line up from highest rank to lowest. So I was always at the bottom of the line, and it was easy to see I was at the bottom of the line because I was also the tallest person in the class. The second and third graders were shorter. And, um, and, and that was great. And, but the day I got my yellow belt... Well, that was exciting, because I thought at least I get to stand in front of those white belt losers and, uh, and go, you know, mid-level line. And that was fun for like a class, till Doug moves us to another class where I'm back at the bottom of the line. And, and let me tell you, there is nothing more humbling than a third grade girl who continually corrects your karate moves. And she's right, because she's a higher belt, and she's been practicing harder, and no matter how hard I try and catch up, she still just beats me over and over. And, uh, and, and that's the thing. I, I love karate. It's been fun. Doug's great with the kids. He's patient with me, and uh, we like going to karate. Um, however, it, it's hard to not go to karate and start comparing the color of your belt to somebody else's uh, belt color. And, and that just seems to happen naturally. I mean, that's the thing about comparison. It just kind of happens. And, and just because it happens doesn't mean it's necessarily good, but, but it happens. And, and, I, and, and we can easily struggle with comparison. Now, now, we're continuing on in a series this morning where we're talking about how we want to be undivided. However, in the church in Corinth, they struggled with division. 
Well, what caused it? Well, Paul talks about it in the very first chapter. He says, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, that there be no divisions among you. Some from Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you. What I mean is, one of you says, I follow Paul. Another says, I follow Apollos. And another says, Peter. And still another says, I follow Christ. Now, it's my opinion, if you're going to join this comparison contest, that you would just pick Christ. I mean, I think he trumps the other ones, and that's smart. But, you know, there's some people who go, hey, that's great. You like Paul, but, but let me just tell you, I follow Peter. I mean, Peter, he had a close relationship with Jesus. He was uh, sometimes referred to as a super apostle, and so we kind of get that. But, but what about this Apollos dude? I, I mean, why, why would people go, hey, that's great. You like Paul, but let me tell you who I follow. Apollos. I mean, this guy. Uh, and so we, we have a couple scriptures that let us know about Apollos. The first one that shows up is in Acts chapter 18. It says, Now a Jew named Apollos, an Alexandrian by birth, an eloquent man, came to Ephesus, and he was mighty in the scriptures. And, and there's several verses that follow in the New Testament text that tell us about Apollos. And, and basically what we can understand is, is Apollos becomes a, a convert to Christianity, and then he just starts preaching. And nobody preaches quite like Apollos. I, I mean, this guy, he, he's the kind of guy you, you know, open the phone book, and by the time he gets to cue, you're giving your life to Jesus. I mean, he's just, he's talented, he's skilled, he, he's this epic orator. And, and I'm not saying Paul's a bad speaker, but compared to Apollos, I mean, that guy can preach. That guy's got some words, so much so, some people are like, yeah, Paul's all right, but have you heard Apollos? Yeah, I follow that guy. I'm like, you know, on his Twitter and everything. I, I, that's the guy I want to be known for. And so I wonder. I wonder if Paul struggled a bit. If he wished that he was just a better speaker. More like Apollos. You see, the thing that happens with comparison when we get into it is naturally it divides us. Comparison divides us. It, it divided that church and it divides us externally, but it also divides us internally. Some of us struggled with it this morning. We were feeling really good about looking our best for church, right? And we came in, we liked how the outfit was fitting until we saw how it looked on her. You know, we, we really liked, you know, how we we're looking, how my hair's going today until we saw him. And we start comparing ourselves to, to other people in the room. And think about comparison, it's easy to do. I mean, we can always find somebody better looking. We can always find somebody who seems to have more. We can always find someone who just seems luckier or just all around sexier than us. And what makes it worse? Social media. I mean, we hop on Facebook and Instagram and Snapchat, and, um, and we forget that we're seeing just a small snippet of people's lives. And they chose to throw on the best snippets of their lives. We forget that we're looking through a filter, a lens. It's not a complete representation. In fact, even who we represent, the way we represent ourselves on Facebook and Snapchat, and uh, you know, it, it's not a complete picture of how our lives actually are. I mean, have you ever gone onto social media because you're excited? You want to see what's going on in your friends' and your family's life, and before long, you are depressed <laughs> because you're going, oh, well, I wish we would go on that kind of vacation, or I wish... We could get that kind of car. I wish my children seemed that happy and excited about life. And See, the thing about comparison, yeah, it divides us, but it also steals. It steals joy from our strengths. In other words, we're 
feeling really good about our accomplishments until we see somebody else's accomplishments. We feel really good about the blessings that God has bestowed on our life until we see the blessings that other people seem to be enjoying. Comparison begins to steal our joy. And nobody wins in the game of comparison. Sure, there can be somebody who's kind of ahead of you, but all of a sudden they fail or fall or trip up, and, and you might have a millisecond of happiness that they failed, but altogether it doesn't make you feel great about your life. Nobody wins in the game of comparison. And it's one thing when we're struggling internally. I mean, it's one thing when we're comparing ourselves to each other. It's another thing when other people are comparing us to other people. It's a whole new level of pain. And we know that Paul deals with this. In fact, there's um, one verse here in 2 Corinthians chapter 10 where Paul just says, Hey, I know what people are saying about me. I know what they're saying. Some say his letters are weighty and forceful, but in person, he is unimpressive. And his speaking amounts to nothing. In person, he's unimpressive. You know, there's some early uh, church writings about the appearance of Paul. And and they say that Paul was a short man. He was balding. That uh, he walked funny because he was bow-legged. That he had kind of a big crooked nose and a unibrow to top it all off. I mean, that's that's difficult there. And and then Paul says even in the scriptures that that sometimes he feels timid to speak face-to-face to to people. that, That he admits he's an untrained speaker. And I wonder if for Paul, he wished he was more like Apollos. He wished he was a, a better speaker or that people at least enjoyed looking at him as he spoke. I wonder if Paul considered his public speaking to be one of his weaknesses. And so what do you do? What do you do if you're struggling with internal comparison or, or, or even worse, you're struggling because other people are comparing you to other people? Well, in these next verses, I think we can learn a lot from Paul because Paul, first off, decides what he will not do. He says this, We do not dare to classify or compare ourselves with some who commend themselves. In other words, Paul says, I'm not even going to play the game. No one wins. I'm not going to play the comparison game. He says, When they measure themselves by themselves and compare themselves with themselves, they are not wise. It's not going to work out. It doesn't work out well for them. It's not going to work out well for me. So, That is what I will not do, which begs the question, okay, Paul, what will you do? What do we do when comparison is so easy to fall into? What do we do? What's better than this? And so these next verses I really want to unpack because I think there's something Paul just takes a moment to teach us, a, a deeper type lesson. And he starts off by talking in third person, which I find interesting. He says this, now I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Now, we know Paul is talking about himself uh, in this verse, but what's the deal with the third heaven? Is Paul saying that there's different levels and, and you know, levels of heaven? I, I don't think he's saying that. In fact, if you look at the audience Paul's talking to, the, the Greeks and the Hebrews, um, they had this idea of the heavens that's very similar to what we believe. They would say there's this first level of heaven, and that's the sky where the birds fly about, and And then if you were to go above there into the second level of heaven, you'd see the stars in the universe. And then there's this third heaven where the divine exists, where God and his angels dwell. And Paul's saying, 14 years ago, I was caught up to third heaven. I got to see heaven. 
And what a lot of scholars think, if you go back 14 years, you're going to find Paul. He's, he's in this town called Lystra. And he starts preaching about Jesus in Lystra. And as a result, Paul gets stoned. Let me rephrase that. Um, there are people who did not like what Paul was saying, so they threw rocks at him. I know some of you are going, 14 years ago, I was stoned as well, and I about reached the third heaven. That's a totally different scenario right there. We have prayer partners at the end service. We can talk. No, Paul got people upset. They threw rocks at him, and Paul has a near-death experience. Paul gets to go to heaven. He gets to see what it's like, hear things that we can't even understand. And in my opinion, that should be the end of the chapter. It's kind of like when Brian Regan, he, the comedian, he talks about how if you're at the party, the best story you could have is if you're one of the few men who walked on the moon. Somebody else could be bragging about how much money they have on their 401k, and you could just say, hey, that's great. Um, I walked on the moon. You know, beat that. <laughs> and no one can. I mean, and that's kind of what Paul's doing. Hey, that's great. Apollos is such a great speaker. I'm glad you like him. Hey, I went to heaven. You, you been there? You see anything? No? no? Oh, okay. Yeah, I've been to heaven. Um, you know, I think the, the chapter just stops there. I win. Or, or the chapter continues on, and Paul just brags about it. Let me tell you all about it, you know. But that's not what Paul decides to do. He doesn't decide to use it to compare. This is what he does. He says, I know that this man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I do not know, but God knows, was caught up to paradise and heard inexpressible things, things that no one is permitted to tell. I will boast about a man like that, but I will not boast about myself except about my weaknesses. What? Why why are you going to boast about your weaknesses, Paul. You see, in these next moments, Paul takes us somewhere. I think Paul leads us through a form of confession on Paul's behalf. You see, if comparison steals joy from our strengths, then it's confession that reveals joy from our weakness. It reveals joy. There's something there. Paul says, you want to talk about my weaknesses? Let me lead the discussion. (laughs) Let me tell you about what really trips me up. Let me tell you about what keeps me awake at night. Let me tell you about what I struggle with. And even in my faith, I struggle with. And Paul just takes us there. Let me be vulnerable. Let me be genuine. Let me just confess. You see, I think in these moments, there's some things we can learn, important things we can learn from Paul. The first is simply this. To embrace the existence of our weakness. To embrace that it exists. You know, we don't like to do that, especially as Americans. I mean, we even hate that interview question at the job we're trying to get, right? They'll ask us, you know, tell me about your strengths. And we'll go on and on. And they're like, tell me about your weakness. We'll be like, oh, well, I work too hard. I love too much, you know. And we'll, we'll come up with these, these things that, you know, they're really not even weak, you know, because we don't want to talk about it. We don't want to act like it exists. We'd rather fix it before anybody sees it. Uh, or, or we'd rather deny that we even have them. Or, or better yet, we'd rather blame them on other people. We'd be like, you know, I wouldn't have this weakness if it wasn't for my parents' weakness and what they did to me, you know. We, we don't like to talk about it. And Paul in this moment decides to bring us together and said, let's talk about weakness. Let's be honest that we have them. Paul says this. He says, therefore, in order to keep me from becoming conceited, 
I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. A messenger of Satan to torment me. I want to just take some moments here to break this verse down. I don't think even the English does it justice. If you go back to the original Greek in which Paul wrote this, there's so much depth in there. You see, Paul starts by telling us, therefore, in order to keep me from becoming conceited. What's Paul saying? Without God's help, I have a pride problem. It's like, let's just go there. I, Paul, I struggle with pride. You see, Paul knew that his pride would get in the way of God's mission for his life. I'm going to jump in with Paul this morning and say, I'm Tom Goodlett. I have a pride problem. <laughs> and, uh, and there's something, there's a prayer I, I, that I have right before I come on stage. Every time. Look, I love to be on this stage, and I love to be able to share with you. But there's a prayer I always have backstage, and it goes like this. Dear God, humble me now backstage so you don't have to do it on stage. <laughs> because that's how God works. <laughs> And I know my pride will get in the way of his plan for my life. And so Paul says, I have this pride problem, so, so I was given. You know, that word in the English, it doesn't quite cut it. If you were to go back to the Greek, it would mean something like I was gifted. And not that $5 gift card that you get from an acquaintance, you know, to Starbucks or something like that. No, we're talking about the kind of gift you find under a Christmas tree. The kind of gift that comes from somebody who knows you so well and loves you so much that you can't wait to open and see what it is. Paul says, I was gifted like a Christmas gift. I was gifted a thorn in my flesh. And I can tell you, we're not talking about a splinter here. We're talking about like a tent peg that jabs into the skin, much like the thorns that pierce the skull of Jesus Christ on the cross. I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan. Now, we don't know if Paul's being literal right here, where he's saying that, you know, God allowed Satan to do this to me, or he's just being figurative. He's using like a figure of speech, like where we'll say, well, it hurt like the devil, whatever that means. I mean, but we know this, when we hit the word torment, we get the description in that Greek language. it, It would mean... Something that beats you black and blue to the point of almost death. Paul says, I was given this gift, a thorn in the flesh that feels like I'm about, I get beaten so bad by it, I'm about to die. That's what I have to deal with. Which begs the question, by the way, what's the thorn in the flesh? What what is Paul's struggle? And there's so many ideas and theories about what what it could be, because he, he doesn't come out and just tell us. And so you have scholars who take previous scriptures and they put together these theories, and you could Google them yourself, or I'll just give you some of the more popular ones. They say, well, obviously it was a physical struggle for Paul. It, it was something like uh, maybe he had constant earaches or headaches or, or epilepsy, that, that maybe Paul, um, he had an eye condition. He, was, he struggled with going blind, or, or, or maybe it was reoccurring attacks that he had from a Uh, A lingering fever that just wouldn't go away. Or or maybe it was him just dealing with his physical appearance. That that he wished he wasn't so short. Or he wished that his nose wasn't so big or crooked. Or that his unibrow was two brows. I mean, that that Paul wished he was just dealing with his own appearance. Or maybe it was mental. I mean, some scholars will argue that. They'll say, well, it was obviously a mental thing he struggled with. Perhaps he had overwhelming anxiety. And so when he got up to speak, it really, really messed with him. Or, or maybe it was temptation. Maybe, maybe it was sexual lust. Maybe it was even lust in an uncommon way. Or, or maybe 
It was the criticism. It was the opposition. It was the persecution. It was the comparison he experienced from people even within the churches that he established. The, the kind of criticism and comparison that would make him even wonder if he should keep going on in the ministry. But the reality is we don't know. We don't know what Paul's thorn in the flesh was. And I think Paul decides not to tell us on purpose. He leaves it ambiguous so that you can take your thorn in the flesh and insert it into Paul's situation. What's your thorn in the flesh? Is it physical? Is it mental? You see, Paul, in these moments, he decides, let's not talk about comparison, which divides us. Let's talk about something that unites us. Weakness. We all have weaknesses. We're all broken people at some level. And Paul says, why don't you take your weakness and put it into my situation and see what God can do? We don't know if it was a mental weakness or a, spirit or a physical weakness. What we do know, the answer was a spiritual answer. Paul says this, three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. Now, once again, we hit three times. We don't know if he's being literal there. If he's saying, you know, there's these three powerful prayer times. I just poured it out to God. Or if he's using a Hebrew figure of speech, which would mean to kind of pray continuously. Many times he prayed over and over. He pleaded, pleaded with God. But what we do know, what Paul teaches us in this moment, is to pray. Pray through our weakness. Not little prayers. Desperate prayers. Pray desperate prayers. Passionate prayers. Regarding our weakness. It was several years back that I had the privilege to go to Africa on a mission trip. Prior to that mission trip and ever since, I, I've never seen poverty like I witnessed there in Africa. There's one afternoon in particular, we were at a rundown building. This was a schoolhouse we were trying to fix up as a mission team because this is where the kids uh, were able to get meals where they were able to receive an education. And there was one afternoon in particular that there we are all in this building, the Americans, the missionaries, the teachers, and some of the students. And one of the teachers asked one of the students if she'd be willing to lead us in prayer. And so one of the girls got up and said, I'd love to do that. And she started praying. And I can't remember every line in her prayer, but I can remember one. At one point in her prayer, she said, thank you, God, that today we got to have breakfast. I don't know what she said past that, because that line alone pierced my heart and convicted me. I thought to myself, I don't know if I've ever had a day or a morning where I even wondered whether or not I could have breakfast, let alone be that thankful for it. It was a famous African pastor who came to the United States, and he preached a sermon to the Americans. He said, you know what? In America, you believe in God But in Africa, we depend on him. Have you ever found yourself praying passionate prayers? Prayers as if your life depended upon the results. And you could say, but Tom, I read ahead. I saw the scriptures further. And Paul says that God never removed the thorn in his flesh. And my answer to you this morning is, so? See, I think we struggle with that. 
We struggle with that, especially as Americans. Sometimes we'll struggle to believe God is good or, or even we'll stop believing in God because he does not answer the prayers the way we would like him to. And as much as that makes sense in our own head, it doesn't make sense. I mean, my kids can do that. I mean, there, there are several nights that go by, and, and right before bedtime, my children say, Hey, Dad, can we have candy? And the answer is, No, I'm not going to sugar you up right before you go to bed. And, and my kids could go, Well, that must mean Dad hates us. And, uh, you know, or, or better yet, He doesn't exist. Dad doesn't exist. He doesn't exist. It, it wouldn't negate the fact that I love my children, nor would it negate the fact that I exist. <laughs> You see, when God doesn't give us answers that we want, it doesn't mean that he's not here and that he doesn't still love us and care for us. And you can say, but Tom, you don't get it. I've been praying passionate prayers. God hasn't said a word to me, not even a no. I'll take a no, but I haven't heard a thing. And my answer to you this morning is, so? It's in those moments When God doesn't seem to be saying anything, that you can rest your confidence on what he has already said. Pray through the Psalms. Open up the Bible. Pray along with those psalmists who are wondering with you, where's God in this moment? Why isn't he here when it hurts hurts so much? and, and, And I don't understand why things are happening the way they're happening. Discover with the psalmists rediscover the promises of God as they rediscover them. That, oh yeah, I can still rest upon this promise of God. You see, Paul says, pray. Pray through the thorn. Pray through the weakness. Pray through the loss. And pray passionately. You see, Paul himself prays passionately until... Until he hears a word from God. He says, but God said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Your weakness might not get any better. There may be nothing more you can do about your situation, your loss, or your weakness. You know, there are some thorns that will just not be removed. And you have a choice. You can see them as a curse or as a gift. You see, God will not grant our every request nor relieve our every pain, but he will honor his promise to be there to encourage us, to strengthen us, and to use us to do great good. You see, there's something else Paul teaches us in this moment, and that is we can still let God do something strong Through our weakness. It's one of the mysteries of following Jesus. Because I don't know what it looks like in your life to let God do something strong where you are weak. I don't even know how to get you there this morning. But what I do know is it might be difficult. It it will require you letting go of comparison, letting go of criticisms, letting go of your own conditions and your own control. What I do know is that it will not be easy. What are the sticklers? And this is Jane. And I'm Kent. Guy was our second child. He was born when uh, Kent was a senior in college. 
Watching Guy grow up was very interesting. He, we knew how smart he was. Th there was something special about him. We didn't quite know what it was. Uh, he was very introverted and very quiet in groups, large groups. He'd go into the shower and he'd pull the shower curtain, get a pillow, and he'd read. <laughs> and so by 10 years old, he had read all of John Steinbeck's novels. We thought that was unusual. <laughs> we thought that was unusual, so we had this child. He had many, a lot of good memories. He had many interests. Um, after John Steinbeck, he switched to comic books. And after the comic books came music and uh, movies. We think for sure he had a photographic memory because he, he didn't forget anything about a movie. I'm giving a speech in Indianapolis in my class as a mother, and she's got this child, and uh, it's, it's the child. She starts to describe some of the characteristics of her child, and she mentions her child has Asperger's, and I knew nothing about Asperger's at the time. I'm not even sure I remember, even knew, had heard the word or anything, which is a high-functioning form of autism. And I say that sounds like my, it sounds like God. Now, guys, in, you know, in his 20s, maybe early 30s at that time. Then we, after all this goes on, we go to a psychiatrist, and it really gets confirmed. Well, because of the diagnosis, there was a requirement. It led to a lot, some other things which required medications. And so Guy would be on medications that caused depression problems. Uh, he was having some problems with digestive systems, so stress. he was taking stress, and he was taking medications for that. It was a Friday night, and I went over. We hadn't seen Guy for a day or two, and because of his situation, we lived in a condo, and we bought the condo right next door for Guy and his son. And so I went over on a Friday night, just hadn't seen him for a day or two, and I walked in, and, and his car was in the garage, and the music was playing, the lights were on. Uh, I looked in the kitchen, there was a, a milk carton still with milk and it got warm and it kind of irritated me. He wouldn't put it back in the refrigerator. <laughs> but I assumed maybe he'd gone out with one of his friends, so I went, went back home right next door. Saturday morning I get up and I'm going to the gym to work out, it's about 8.15. And I just, I don't know, said I'll go check on Guy, was, you know, right next door. So I go in and the door's unlocked, uh, the music's playing, uh, the same lights are on, and the milk carton's still out. And uh, so I go and finally decide I'm going to empty the milk carton because I sat all night long. And, and I happen just to glance to my right, and I notice behind the kitchen table, I notice Guy's feet. And right away, I bend over, and uh, probably the worst time in my entire life, he, he's not alive. The time since then has not been easy. There's no word to describe the peace that the Holy Spirit gives you through times like this. It's just unbelievable. Um, there's even an odd joy there, just the comfort, because we knew immediately, and I believe 100% with all my heart, we'll be with him again, and he'll have a clear brain. It'll be wonderful. Every morning in my devotions, uh, there's a part of my devotions in my prayer life where I thank God for things. 
And I have a little rule. I thank him for 10 things every morning. And number six on my list is I thank God every morning for Guy's faith. You know, I read the other day a quote, uh, one of the problems of being an atheist is who do you talk to when you're alone? <laughs> and that kind of reminds me that without faith and you lose people like a child, who do you talk to without your faith? So the faith, uh, it's, all, it's, it's all it is. It's all. It's the hope is, is huge. And the idea of being able to see Guy again, healthy and happy, is huge. Huge. And that's not the end of the story. For years and now decades, the Stickler family have been pouring in to other organizations skills like leadership, compassion, including pouring into Harborside Christian Church. I know that Kent and Jane have been an inspiration and encouragement to myself, to Kurt, and overall helped give us the skills to be hopefully better leaders and father and parent. And I thank you for your service and letting God do something strong through your weakness. It's not the end of your story. You thank them. It's not the end of your story either. It's not the end of this church's story or the people who dwell within it. There's so much hope still ready. You know, it seems like there's some things that God can just teach us and show us in our weakness that are not available to us in our strengths. I mean, have you wondered, perhaps God has allowed you to have this weakness. Perhaps God has allowed you to exist within this situation because he's standing ready to do something strong, something great, using you through this situation. God is ready to do something strong through your weakness. You know, I wonder, I wonder if the Apostle Paul wished he was a better public speaker. I wonder if he yearned to to be more like Apollos. (laughs) But I can tell you I'm glad that's not the end of Paul's story. Well, maybe he struggled with comparison at some level. Maybe he, he yearned to be a better speaker. It didn't seem to get Paul stuck. And Well, let me just tell you how I know. What's your favorite verse from Apollos? What, what, what's, your, what's, what's that memory verse that, that has been placed within your heart and has allowed you to get through tough times or maybe even challenged you to grow even closer to God? You're not going to find any verses from Apollos in the Bible. And you ever wonder if maybe Paul was a better speaker? Maybe he wouldn't have had to write so much down. Paul teaches us something. You can let God do something strong through your weakness. What could God do through yours? I invite you to find out with me. And perhaps together we can declare like Paul did. For Christ's sake, I delight. I delight in weakness. I delight in insults. I delight in hardships. I delight in persecutions. And I delight in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am 
strong. 